0: Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn back to Proverbs chapter 31, and uh, you know, we're almost done with this great chapter, a couple of more weeks, and uh, we'll have uh, um, come through this incredible book that uh, I've enjoyed uh, so much, and um, you know, and and we know now that uh, what we have here is an inside look at God's mind through the book of Proverbs. Uh, somebody said one time that the book of Ecclesiastes represents the mind of the spirit, and it does, because if you go to the first chapter, it talks about the spirit of God going in that circular pattern. They also said that the Song of Sodom is the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it certainly is, because you can see there how he looks at you and me and how we should look at him. But they all said that the book of Proverbs is the mind of God. And boy, that no truer statement was ever made. Now, when you go through this book and, you know, you have God's opinion on everything that's going to formulate itself into some kind of issue of life, everything that you and I need now to be able to identify a situation, deal with a situation, or fix a situation uh, is now laid out in that book of just understanding how God looks at it and what his opinion is of it. We've talked about it many not many times, how that in the book of Isaiah chapter 55, uh, the Bible makes it clear that, that we don't think like God thinks, that he on another thinking plane than we are. And that's part of the transformation process when you get saved of washing out the way we think of things normally and then seeing God's standpoint, from God's standpoint, everything in life. That is what the Bible calls understanding. And uh, here at Old Paths Baptist Church, this, my goal was to help you get that, for those of you that want it. And, uh, you know, it's all built around, as I said, getting the wisdom and understanding of God, which the pattern for that is found in Proverbs chapter 2 there in the first five verses, which covered that many, 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 many times ago uh, when we went through the early chapters. And, you know, on us not being a foolish individual when it comes to the things of God, but rather a wise son. And we've talked repeatedly how the book of Proverbs, is, it it talks about a wise man and a foolish man. The wise man is someone who gets God's understanding. The foolish man is someone who simply does not. And in Proverbs chapter 31 you know, we can see the mind of Christ as to the work that he has for us. And and that's really where we've been focusing in this great chapter. Our theme verse for this chapter was a verse out of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, which talks about that uh, God at salvation has begun a good work in us and will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And that's where we're all at today, if you're saved, You're somewhere in that process. And uh, once you get saved, some things begin to automatically change in your life. And then you have to pick that up and continue that by adding to your faith, as Paul talks about the great things that need to be added. And, uh, you know, uh, and it's a thing where when we look at this great chapter, we see what it will take to really serve the Lord. We see what it will cost for you and I to really serve the Lord. And every detail was laid out for us to clearly see uh, what needs to be done in our own life. You know, I, I never I never talk about these things of really giving God your all, uh, giving him your everything, and not think of how many of God's people will simply never do that. And, uh, you know... Scenarios in the Bible, as you learn the Bible and the Bible becomes everything that you use in dealing with life and looking at it, you're going to see that the scenarios in the Bible really add to uh, a dimension of your life when you have to encounter a situation or deal with a situation or you just hear of a situation. You know, all through my ministry, I've, you know, dealt with parents that had children that didn't do what they needed to do, you know, wayward kids. And every time you deal with that, no matter who it is, it doesn't matter. The scenario comes to mind of the prodigal son. What a great story that is and unfolding. And it really shows, it's one of the most incredible stories in the Bible. And that's what these scenarios do. You find yourself in a scenario or a situation and the scenario fits it. That scenario will give you almost everything you need to know about how it happened, what do you do with it now that it has happened, and 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 how to go forward in the situation. You know, I I I've been to many funerals where it was probably a pretty accurate statement that the person that died was not a believer, not saved. You know, and I, I again I you know I you go to those and you know, you you hear the preacher get up and try to, you know, make the guy or the gal sound like, you know, that they were really something special and and how God, we're all the children of God and God loves everybody and all this stuff, you know. And yet, the scenario that comes into my mind, and I think about it all the time when I hear a situation or I see a situation, is Luke chapter 16, the rich man in hell. And I, the verse, part of that verse that, in hell, he lifted up his eyes in, in, in torment. You know, and I and I think of scenarios like that that fit the people. I think, you know, the scenario of Mary and Martha. You know, Mary and Martha basically, fundamentally lay out the two types of Christians. You have Mary, who you always found her at the feet of the Lord Jesus. She uses her own hair to wipe his feet with the precious oil that she buys. She's a picture of of, of many of God's people, male and female, who really... When you find them, they're always at the feet of Jesus. Then you have Martha, and, uh, and uh, you know, she's always in the middle of everything. Martha is cumbered about with all kinds of stuff. Martha wants, she's the kind of Christian who wants everybody to see what she's doing. And, you know, and, and you meet people like that in both canarios. And I, I'm just telling you, I'll meet somebody and get to know them and, and um, watch them what they do with the Lord. And I'll say to myself, you know, th- that's a Mary. That's a Mary. You see other ones, and you say to yourself, that's a Martha. And the scenarios are so absolutely incredibly important in, in the Bible. And you know, I I think of and many of you have been in this situation where you win somebody to Christ, and it's just like the apple just fell into your lap out of the tree. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, you, you went someplace and the guy was, the gal was just ready to go, ready to get saved. I mean, they almost opened up the Bible and showed you how to show them how to get saved. And in that case, I think of the, the scenario of the Philippian jailer. He was ready to be one to Christ. He was right there. Didn't take any prodding. Everything was right there. And then I think of the other type, you know, like the Ethiopian eunuch. And I've seen that so many times where you go someplace God has you there, and you don't even know that. And right there, around you, is someone like that Ethiopian eunuch who's searching for God. All he needs is a few answers. All they need is somebody to open up. And you know, and I think to myself, you know, that was an Ethiopian eunuch. That was that was the uh, Philippian jailer. You know, that was. It, it's such a. Those scenarios are so good. And when I think of men and women who simply. Christians who don't want to do what's right with the Lord. I mean, I I don't understand it. I mean, I do, but it's hard for me to grasp that. And when I think of them, I always think of the story in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and 22, in the scenario of the rich young ruler. And it's one of the greatest stories in the Bible. And it says, and when he was gone forth, Jesus, into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, good master, What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and thy mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, Go thy way and sell whatever thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. That's one of the greatest stories in the Bible. You know, I talked about scenarios when you learn your Bible, scenarios in life and it needs to learn that. You know, there's a story about George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a great preacher. He preached in the 1700s up around the New England area and was really responsible, him and Jonathan Edwards, for the Great Awakening, the First Great Awakening. And he was preaching one time and, um, you know, it was a cold winter night and he was preaching and he preached for like two weeks in this well-to-do family that he was staying with. You know, they weren't saved. Uh, they had everything that they could ever want a beautiful place. He owned businesses all through town, you know. And like most guys, they want to be the guy that keeps the preacher, you know, the great George Whitfield. And uh, they came every night that he preached, and George Whitfield could really preach the Word of God, but they never gotten saved. And, uh, you know, I talk about scenario. George Whitfield had this scenario in his mind because he was getting up to leave that morning. And uh, the carriage was down front, and he had his bags packed, and the windows were all frosted over, and he took his ring, and he scrawled in the ice, and as it melted, you know, it got larger letters, and he, he he wrote in there in the window in the frost, yet thou lackest one thing. The lady, a couple of hours later, came up to clean the room and make up the room, and Called her husband up. Her husband come running up the stairs, and there on that window, now the heat from the room had made the the letters a lot bigger. And it stoodly sat there. Yet they'll lack us one thing. Both those people got on their knees and got saved right there at that point in time. And you know what? George Whitfield had a scenario in his mind. He saw people that fit into the very scenario who had everything. They had they had everything they wanted, and they went to church, but they kept George Woodfield, gave money to the church. were prominent in the community. Yet they'll lack us one thing. And, and I look at this story here, and I see a lot of God's people that are that same way. And now you look at this this kid. Now he goes to church. Obviously, I'm putting it into a New Testament context. He he's a religious kid. He go he would somebody today he'd be go to church and he'd read his Bible probably every day or every week of his life. And he's just like so many of God's people that we find today. And, you know, he, he, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He wants to do something for God. This guy is moral. He keeps the law. And he wants to follow the Lord. And the Lord looks at him and he says, you know what? And I love this. The Bible says that the Lord beheld him and loved him. You know, God will love you even when you don't love him. Amen. And even when you don't love him like you should love him, he'll love you every bit the way he should love us. Now, if that don't make you love him, I, I don't know what in this world ever will. And the Bible says he saw this guy who wanted to follow him, wanted to be like him, but he knew that the kid wasn't going to do it, but yet he still loved him. And he says, okay, he says, he says you lack one thing. And the kid says, what is that? And he says, all those great possessions that you have, all those things that you've invested your life in that in eternity are never going to make a difference, you go get rid of all that, you sell all that, and then you come and follow me. The Bible says he was grieved in his heart and went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. And, you know, I, I look at that and I think to myself, you know, the Lord will always... The Lord will always tests you with the very thing that you love more than him. And it's an incredible thing. You know, I look at this young guy here and the first thing that pops out to me, like so many of God's people, he wants to follow Christ. He's obviously heard about everything that Christ has done and he wants to follow him. And hey, he's got 95, 96, 98% of it right on the money. But he still lacked one thing. You see, possessions, loving things in this world more than God will always obscure your faith. Because when times get tough in the ministry, you'll have a tendency to one, run back to everything that is good that you have. And so that's why in a spiritual sense, you've got to give it all away if you really want to keep it because in your life as a Christian, then there's no going back to anything because you don't have it anymore. And yet I noticed this guy, he says... Verse 17, he says, good master. You know, that's exactly what Judas called Jesus before he betrayed him. You know, Judas never called Jesus Lord. He always called him master. I don't know if you ever picked that up or not. And this kid here is so striking the fact that he is willing to call the Lord Jesus master, but he's not willing to make him Lord of his life. And you know, there's a lot of God's people like that today. See, this kid went to church. He read his Bible, kept the law. And in that sense, he saw Christ as the master. But for you to serve God and to do what God wants you to do, you got to make him the Lord of your life. And that's what he was not willing to do. He's like a lot of God's people. The cost was too high. Uh, They wouldn't think anything of buying this for $10,000 or going on a vacation for $20,000 or buying this or buying that. Uh, They wouldn't think anything wrong. The cost, if you really want something, and this is the true statement if you really want something, the cost will never be that high that you won't work to get it. You know, I always looked at high school kids, you know, when I was a high school pastor and I would have activities for them and. Um, you know, and they would say, well, I'd like to come, but I don't have a way. You know what I learned about kids? If kids really want to go someplace, they're going to find a way to get there. <laughs> if you gave them free tickets to the uh, Schmuck's concert or whatever the case may be, you know, the three-dog night with a broken leg or something like that, and but they had to find their own way, they would get down there. People find a way to do what they really want to do. It's just human nature. Uh, and it's a thing where, you know, the cost was too great. You know, what it costs God for our true token, our salvation, and what it will cost us to finish the work. And that's really the issue with this kid. He looked at all that God had for him and he wanted it, but he looked what he had here and what he had to give up wasn't worth giving up to get what he really thought he wanted to have. Luke chapter 14, verse 28 says, for which of you intending to build a tower setteth not down first and counteth the cost whether you have sufficient to finish it. You know, I think that's probably the number one problem in the Laodicean church age today. I think that preaching is so lame and pastors are so inept and churches are so out of touch with reality that they make Christianity Uh, you know, such an easy thing. Now, I get it. Getting getting saved is the easiest thing on the planet. But I want to tell you something. After you get saved, serving the life of serving God is not going to be the easiest thing you ever did in life. I'm just telling you. And I think that so many pastors, for whatever reason, and there's probably a number of reasons, they want to make salvation so sweet and so simple and so pure, which it is. But they never prepare the people for the cost that comes after you get saved. Hey, there was a cost involved for you to get saved. And there'll be a cost to you for serving him after you do get saved. And most people look at it and they just say, too much. Notice he says here, building a tower. That'd be the Tower of David in the Old Testament, which we've talked about many, many times. The cost of building your tower you know, is just too high for what somebody wants to do. And, you know, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, talking about serving the Lord and the ministry and all that God has for us, you know, you have a great defining passage of, 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 of a, what a minister should be and what his ministry should be. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, therefore, seeing we have this ministry, there it is, therefore, seeing we have this ministry, As we have received mercy, you got saved, I got saved, we faint not. Don't quit. You got a ministry, you see it and you understand it. You got God's mercy, you got saved. Now when it comes to the ministry, you don't faint. All right, what do you do? He says in the rest of verse 1, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Three things plague Christianity today and plague God's people dishonesty, craftiness, and handling the Word of God deceitfully. Amen. Amen. And those where Christianity is at today. And he says, Your ministry <coughs> shouldn't be that. And then he gets into verse two. Here it is, but by manifestation of truth, <coughs> commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now you see the inner details of all that we saw in our study in Proverbs chapter 31 with this virtuous woman. We saw all this unfolding itself in these two key areas uh, that a minister and a ministry has to have. First, it is manifestation of truth. That's just simply preaching the truth. Don't have any hidden agendas in your preaching. <clears throat> you don't preach sermons so people will give money. You, if you preach the word of God, the people will give you all the money you need. But we don't preach the Word of God today. We preach about giving money or doing this and doing that. (coughs) Uh, (coughs) I knew a pastor one time, (coughs) and this shows you the dishonesty. (coughs) I knew a pastor one time that (coughs) put his church into a situation where (coughs) he wanted to buy this property because (coughs) he thought that And told the people that it was going to be, they were going to need it someday. Well, they wouldn't have needed it for at least 120 years the way the church was going. (laughs) But he committed to buy this property. And then he proceeded to beat the people up to pay for it. He would do things like have the kids in the elementary bring in pennies. Now, he knows the pennies couldn't pay for this property but they bagged up the pennies and then had the kids come down at the end of the service after his preaching about this and lay the pennies on the altar that the kids were really, really on board with him and then you can know where you can go with that. Your kids sacrificed all they had to bring their pennies. Now, what that's the way it worked. You know the next thing he did? He asked every family to donate $1,000. And... You know, he even went to the bank and set it up that if you didn't have the money, the bank would lend you the money, give the money to the church, and then you'd pay the bank. That's the way they do it too. And then he put a board up in front of the church with everybody's name on it in the church and hallelujah, brother, praise the Lord. He identified all the families that gave a $1,000. And by doing that, he identified all the families that didn't give $1,000. See how it works. Uh, My philosophy is this. If God orders it, then God pays for it. I saw churches this week had their big firecracker tents out there selling firecrackers to make money for the church. Now, I would never do that, but my main reason i do it but we never sell anything. We'd light all them suckers off and we'd have a ball at the time of our lives. So <clears throat> that would be just a, a redundant thing to try to do. <clears> that wasn't going to work. But I, was, I look at that and I thought to myself, <clears throat> if your church is in such bad shape financially that you've got to sell firecrackers, put up a tent, I, I'm, I'm all for firecrackers. <clears throat> I'm not an anti-firecracker preacher. In fact, in my preaching, I can be quite a firecracker if you just light my fuse. <clears throat> But it's a thing where I'm thinking to myself, I don't get it. I, I, I manifestate. Let you, you let the Bible lay itself out to you first, rightly dividing the word of truth, and then you rightly lay it out to the people God has given you. You never pick or choose what you want to believe about the Bible. But then also you never pick and choose what you want to preach about the Bible because you have your own agendas you want to accomplish. You preach the whole counsel of God. When I come through Proverbs, don't you know? You say you keep taking your glasses off. Yeah, but that, that adds to the message. You know, it's like... <laughs> See, now you think you're going to get something. You're not, but you think you're going to get something. But, you know, I, I, I look at that and I think to myself, you know... Uh, You just got to preach everything that God gives you. And I know coming through the book of Proverbs, I knew going in on a Sunday morning, there was going to be some things that I was going to preach on that probably were going to not be popular with people. I mean, there's a lot of things in Proverbs and you start getting into the Bible, that Bible starts getting into you. It's like I tell you all the time, the Bible is the only book in the world when you start reading it, it starts reading you. And I knew, I would think, I would say, I would think, well, this person out here or that family here or this person here, this, you know, it might be an issue for them. And uh, you know what? I would say, I don't know what to tell you. It's in the text. That's where I'm at. I'm not going to sidestep it. I'm not going to conveniently forget verse 14 and then just say, oh, oops, I forgot it and then move on. No, no. You preach the Bible. You don't get sarcastic about it. You don't, get, you don't get angry about it. You don't get to the place where you get vindictive about it. You just simply preach the Bible. It's called manifestation of truth. And if there's anything, I, I don't know what your spiritual condition is this morning, but I'll tell you, for all of us, the thing that we need in the world that we live in and where you're at in this world is truth. Amen. Because everything else is, is phony and not real. And then the second thing is commend ourselves to every man's conscience. We should we who teach the word of God, we who lay out the word of God, whether it's me as a pastor or you discipling somebody or working with somebody, to the best that you can, to the best of your ability, you need to live the examples of what you're preaching. Uh, you, you never ask your people as a pastor, you never ask your people to do something you're not willing to do yourself and you're not all you're there in the middle of it in the military. The great leaders, the great commanders, the great platoon sergeants, the great lieutenants, the captains they had a saying you know that they were the first boots on the ground and the last boots off. And, of course, you lead by, in Christianity, you lead by example, not by position. You don't ask somebody to follow you because, well, I'm a Christian and I've been in this church, or you follow me because I'm the pastor. You lead by example. And that's where the Bible says, commending ourselves to every man's conscience. Let him see who you really are. Most pastors are so guarded, they have a wall around them, that you'll never penetrate and you'll never get to know them. You have to call them pastor all the time. And you have to be, you know, like when you walk up to them, you got to look down because, you know, they're, they're up there with God. You know, that is so phony. Amen. You know what? I'm just like you. I have the strange struggles that you have. I have the same issues in my life that you have in yours. I'm no better than you. And the bottom line is, whether we like it or not, we are all in this cesspool called the world together. And, uh, you know, it's just the way that it is. And then you take care of your people. You realize how special they are to you. A guy asked me one time, he says, putting the Bible aside, putting everything else aside, what is the number one thing that I should do as a pastor? You know, forget teaching the Bible. I know that and all this. But in a practical sense, What is the number one thing I should do? And I didn't even hesitate. And I said, the number one thing you need to do is you need to make your people feel that they're special. Because they are. And they'll be special to you, but only because they're special to God and you represent him, so they better be special to you. And you look for the things to help them. You look for the things to make them better. Shoot, we could all find things wrong with all of us and just harp on that all day long. And a lot of God's people do. A lot of preachers do. But that doesn't help anybody grow. I know we all got our issues. I know we all got our struggles. We all have our times in life where we we could do better than we probably do. All of us. But, you know, you don't help anybody by focusing on that all the time. You have to look past all those things and realize, hey, if it wouldn't be for the grace of God, we'd all be in hell screaming our lungs out this morning. But you know what God did? God saved us and he put us together. You think it's an accident that we're all together this morning? You think it's an accident that God brought you here, established this church, brought you families in and you young singles in and you kids in and everybody in? You think it's just an absolute accident that all that happened? Are you kidding me? Because you're special and God has something for you. and God understands your struggles. He looks past your struggles. He wants to help. Now, you may never get past yours, but he will move around yours to help you be everything that you want to be. That's what a leader does. That's what manifestation of truth and commending yourself to every man's conscience. You tell them, I am no better than you. And you know what? I know you're in a hole and I know you're in a mess and I can't necessarily throw you a rope and make your mess go away, but I'll tell you what I will do. I'll climb down in that hole with you and I'll help you climb out that's what you got to do. That's the ministry. And as I showed you last week, the New Testament will be revealed through the Old Testament and how that the two will work together even through their two different dispensations, you know, and two different, completely different scenarios and how Proverbs 31 will be, uh, you know, an inside look at, at what our attitude of heart should be when it comes to serving God. Not like this rich young ruler but understanding that we counted the cost. We're going to make him Lord of our lives, and we're going to do what he wants us to do. And last week I showed you that this woman was not afraid of the snow, wasn't afraid of winter. We explained all that because she had her household clothed in scarlet, the clothes that she made for her household uh, through the meat that she provided for them, the Bible, teaching them the Word of God. And I showed you two great clothing concepts. First of all, the garments of salvation, Isaiah 61.10. And that's when you clothe somebody's nakedness with the clothing of the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And after salvation, the garments of the robes of righteousness, the judgment seat of Christ, Second Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 3, Revelation chapter 19. Garments of righteousness. And we went back to the story in Joshua, and that's how I showed you how that the Old Testament reveals the new and the story of the scarlet thread. He had Rahab, a sinner. He had her household, her family, and he had the spies, the men who were in foreign country but had the message of God that gave her that message. And how it resulted in, as God's judgment fell on Jericho, her family, her household was saved because of a scarlet thread. And I showed you how that that scarlet thread is a picture of our true token of the salvation, the binding between what God's word says and what God's word will do in your life when you trust him as your own personal savior. And in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 21, this woman, all her family is clothed in scarlet. They're all saved. And so that was a great, 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 understanding of a lot of things as we move into today and look at these next verses that we can continue to put things together. Everything in Proverbs that we've been doing is not just cut and dry one week from the next. It all kind of bolts together. And today, we want to look at the next couple of verses here. And we want to lay out and add uh, these principles to what uh, to what we already have. And so we want to look at Proverbs 31, verses 23 24, and 25. And it says, Her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land. She maketh fine linen, and selleth it, and delivereth girdles unto the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in a time to come. John Biscat, would you ask God's blessing on the preaching this morning? Lord, we thank you. Now here, we see her husband coming into our story. We haven't met him before. Now, inspirationally, obviously, this will be talking about any good godly woman who will always be an asset to to her husband. The Bible says, whoso findeth the wife, findeth the good thing. And uh, she will balance him out and always make him better. Uh, She will help build his uh, good reputation with others, as the verse says, and be a helpmeet to him in, in the ministry. And we've talked about how, back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, that when God brought uh, Eve to Adam, he called her a helpmeet, not a helpmate. And we've talked about it many, many times, and I've made the point every time we go back there, you know, it's simply that, you know, animals have mates. Uh, but humans don't. Humans have a help meet, and that goes back to the fact that uh, um, you know God gave Adam a commission. His convi- commission was to repopulate planet Earth and and do everything and fulfill the plan and the ministry that God had for him. And He gave Eve to him to help as a help meet to help him meet that commandment that God wanted him to do. And you know, and we know that. Now, doctrinally, the context here will be us as Christ's bride. He's my bridegroom. He's actually my husband. And I preached this one time, and a guy said, well, he said, that's not exactly correct because you shouldn't call Christ your husband because you're not married yet. And I said, well, you need to spend a little more time in your Bible because you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 24, you'll find out when people were espoused to each other, they were called husband and wife. But don't let me ruin your day on that one. (laughs) And, of course, uh, he's my husband. And I'm his wife, and uh, w- and when we do the work of Proverbs chapter twenty one, it gives Christ a good reputation in our city. And here is the gate, and the gate in the Old Testament was where all the action was. It's where the elders met. It's where they saw people coming in and going out. It's where uh, it's where everything was happening. And uh, you know, and and that's when you have a relationship with Christ, and you do the work, and you do it biblically, and do it right, then you know, you bring a good reputation uh, to him. You know, Christianity today, sadly saying, Christianity today and pastors today have a really bad image with most people, and I understand that. You have all the TV evangelists on there. Why, the coronavirus wasn't out two weeks. Then Jim Baker and some of these clowns on there had a, had a something that you drink and selling it for millions and millions of dollars, and it'll keep you from getting the virus. And it's just ridiculous. And what was, nothing was was that silver that they used for antibiotics back around 1900, uh, you know, the, the silver and water, and you put it in. And, and he was getting up there and saying, this is proven to, to keep you from getting it. And go, The only people dumber than him are the people that buy that stuff. And it took the federal government coming in with a lawsuit to shut it down because of the fact that, you know, there again, he's, they're dishonest. And that, that leaves a bad taste in their mouth. Oral Roberts before he died, you know, one time he had a prayer tower and, uh, you know, he told the people that he had a burden for missions and he wanted to raise $5 million and he felt like the only way that he could do it was to go up into this prayer tower and he was not going to come down and he was not going to eat till God's people made that money come in so the world could know Christ as their own personal savior. And so he locked himself up in that high prayer tower up there. You know what? I'd let the sucker starve to death. No, I'd have done better than that. I'd have had a window up there. I'd sit down and put a little thing with barbecue beef and and, and and wave the aroma up there, you know, and a couple of McDonald's cheeseburgers, you know, and just, you know, and some salad and bacon and all these eggs, fry it in the morning and let the thing up there. You know, he got his money. He did. Stupid God's people. Raise that money for him to come up in that tower. Oh, it's just ridiculous. And it's things like that that give, us a, give Christianity a bad reputation. You know, the world, in most cases, the world is not as stupid as God's people. And they're lost. You know, the common man in this country, the common ordinary man works a hard job, makes the salt of any. Economy in any nation. You know, the common man knows better how to fix and run this country than the people running it do. But nobody listens to us. And of course, uh, you know, he went up in that prayer tower, you know, and feigned like he was, you know, and people just said, oh, we can't let oral robbers die. Sure you can. (laughs) Well, he was the greatest healer in in America, one of the great top healers. He could have brought himself back to life. Then back in Akron, Ohio, when I was back there, they had a guy by the name of Ernest Ainsley. He just died a couple of years ago. He'd been around a long time. And Ernest Ainsley, he would bring people down in his, he was a charismatic, and he would bring people down and uh, cast demons out of him. That was his big deal. And he was on television every Sunday morning, and they'd bring people down there, and he'd, they'd stand up there, and he'd say, come out! And he'd hit him with his hand, knock him on the ground. And then usher them off, and now they were healed. And people saw through that. You know, when his wife died, his wife's name was Angel. And he made a prophecy that God was going to bring his wife back from the dead because they believed in all the sign gifts. Now, this, you're not going to think this is true, but it is absolutely true. On her grave, they put a big golden angel. And he ran, yes. Telephone lines down into her casket with a telephone in there for that when God finally brought her back to life, she could order out. <laughs> or, or, order out of there or whatever. You're laughing at that. I, it was, you, you say, I would like to go and see that. Well, it's the only one with telephone lines running down into the tombstone. Absolutely true. And you know what? The world looks at that the world sees that. And, and, and you know, that I, it's goofy. But you know what the real problem is? We all get painted with that brush. Yeah. I had a lady one time, and I worked hard on her, her and her husband. They're, they're nice people, but their losses can be and she was a school teacher and she's, she's got her own way of thinking about things. And finally, she asked me if I could get her a Bible because she wanted to read the Bible, so I thought I'd make a little breakthrough with her. But I would tee up, see him up at the fitness center, and we would get talking, you know. And she knew I was a pastor. And I, she says, oh, what denomination? And I said, I was Baptist. And she went, oh, oh Baptist, crazy Baptist. <laughs> see, we get painted with the whole brush. And it's a thing where that's because of Christianity. And that's why a lot of these guys, honestly, took Baptist off their name and became a neo-evangelical. What they think is, DA is a non-denominational when it's not. But they didn't want to be associated because many Baptists have a bad rap around people because they get clobbered with everything. And I get it. I do. I understand that. I mean, you have all the TV evangelists, you have all the goofy, charismatic, and the phonies, you have the mega pastor that all they ever asked for is money, and you got the Baptist. I mean, they're strewed in legalism. The stupid ideas that are all contrary to the Bible, and, and get up there and say some of the stupidest stuff, and they put you in a little box as a Christian where they you talk about, you know, somebody being in slavery. You ain't seen slavery till you've seen most Baptist churches. In any given service, they got this mega church that costs more money than they, anybody has. I remember one time again, and I think I told you this story a while back, they, this church up here, they, 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 they built a boob facility that was like $100 million or something like that. You know, uh, you know it, was just, it was just incredible. And they took up a special offering to get it going. And uh, they raised something like $500,000, and uh, I was over at a friend's house, and he, he knew I was a pastor. And, he, he and, you know, and, and they like to play out their big buildings and all that and against what we have here. There's people that won't come to church in a place like this because it doesn't look like a church. I don't want it to look like a church. I want it to look like what it is, a bomb shelter. We had, had radiation things up there signs a while back where the food was stored. I don't know what happened to them. You know, if they go to these big megachurches and a tornado comes, they are all die. Down here, we're all safe. We wouldn't even know what happens. <laughs> Blow the top off, we just keep on going. It'd be kind of like, can I tell the story about you driving in and getting hit in a deer? And uh, Carolyn told me that they were driving in, coming from Utah, and a, a deer ran out. They were going about 80 miles an hour, and the deer ran out in front of them and totaled their car. But the funny part was you had just put me preaching on it in Job. And uh, I'm preaching away in Job, you know, and they're driving down the road. And that's probably why you didn't see the deer, you know. And the, and the deer comes smashing into them. She says the airbags came out, the, the car smoke, gas system all over the place and all that thing. And she says all the chaos, are you okay, are you okay? And she says through it all, Bob just kept preaching on the book of Job. <laughs> <laughs> I'll preach through any tornado. I got more hot air than they got anyhow. <laughs> people say, what are you? I say, I'm a Baptist with an explanation. I like to explain my position. But people, Christianity got a bad rap today. And you know, you go to these churches, any given service will be 15 minutes of watered down Bible then 30 minutes of give more money and then you come back Sunday night and it's the son of give more money. Listen. The key to making Christ known in the gates will not be exalting yourself or your mega church or all the possessions that you have, but rather simply exalting Christ. Amen. Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14, verse 16, that when we talk about Christ, when we uplift Christ, that the Bible says we are a sweet savor in the nostrils of Almighty God. And he says it always causes us to triumph in anything because it doesn't matter if the person gets saved or the person stays lost. I mean, I want the person to get saved and I don't want anybody to stay lost, but as far as God's concerned, that's their decision. But whether they get saved or lost, when you preach Jesus and exalt him, it's a sweet smell in the nostrils of God. That's our job. Jesus in John chapter 12, verse 32 said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And you know what? That works today just like it did when John wrote that. Simply making your preaching an exaltation of God's Son, lift him up, not yourself. Lift him up. And it's a thing where, you know, and you do that by manifestation of truth. You do that by commending yourself to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And all this is lost today and been replaced with a three ring circus of entertainment. Now, the model. For all of this, as we look at this, the model for all of this here is found in really Nehemiah chapter 8 when they were putting the gates together. And in chapter 8, it's dealing with the water gate, water being a type of the word of God. And you got to remember now in Nehemiah and Ezra, or Ezra and Nehemiah, the Jews are going back after the 70-year captivity and Nehemiah and Ezra are leading the way. And Nehemiah knows they're going to go back and they're going to rebuild the city because they understand that that city, Jerusalem, is the key to their future. And so they're rebuilding the wall and the cities and putting all that together. And it's an incredible picture of you and I in the Laodicean church age, building your body, your temple to be God's building and God's temple and how important it is to your future. So in chapter 8, verse 1, he gathers all the people together. He's going to make a proclamation. He's going to tell them what they're going to do. And he says in 8, 1, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. Now, they get everybody together, and they bring the word of God there. And then in verse 4 says that Nehemiah and Ezra, they make a pulpit of wood. And he stands up in front of those people, puts the word of God on that pulpit of wood, and declares unto them what the word of God says. Now, you probably don't know this. But for the last 300, 400 years, this is why every Baptist church that was worth its salt had the pulpit right in the middle of the church. Because they wanted everybody to know that the central concept and the central idea in this church was the preaching of the word of God. You go to a Methodist church, it'll be on the side. A Lutheran church, it'll be on the side. You go to many evangelical churches, they don't even have one. And you go to a Catholic church, it's, 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 they're, they're all over the place. But true Bible-believing Baptists wanted everybody to know out of Nehemiah chapter 8 that the central preaching and teaching for this church that brought everybody together was the Word of God, and it was preached from a pulpit of wood. Preaching of Christ, exalting him, needs to take center stage in all of our lives, but also in this church. And the central main focus of this church needs to be to lift up Christ. And when you read these great chapters on how they exalted Christ and in and, and come down through this chapter, you're going to find that it, it had a result of five things in their life that needs to be in every church. We talk about revival, and there is no revival today. I drive over to church and pass four or five churches, and every fall they'll have n- revival time, November 5th to November 10th, you know. Come, we're having a revival. And that's what's wrong with America today. You don't schedule God's revival in on your calendar. Revival doesn't start by you bringing in some great guy who can preach and set a time aside. Revival starts in the hearts of God's people. Amen. And there'll be no revival till the word of God gets in your heart through the water gate, through the preaching of the pulpit central to people's lives. Five things. The five first thing he says in verse 8, they read the word of God distinctly. And gave the sense. And they helped people to understand the book, the word of God. And the first thing you see, and in everybody there, the Bible became number one. It was the most important thing that they had. It wasn't a program. It wasn't something that they did. It wasn't their athletic program. It wasn't that they had a great five-star restaurant or a gymnasium. The central thing was that everybody, everybody, the Word of God distinctly and gave the sense. They laid it out doctrinally, historically, and inspirationally. And it says that they caused people, the older ones helped the younger ones figure out the Word of God. Second thing, verse 3, and everybody read the book from morning till midday, and all the people paid attention to the Word of God. Morning, what a long service that is. Why, in most churches, if you preach more than 20, 30 minutes, they're all out the door. They started at 6 o'clock in the morning, and they went till noon preaching the word of God. Nobody complained. Nobody got up and left. Nobody cared about the roast and the oven might burn. Let it burn. Because when the word of God becomes number one in this church and it preached for a pulpit of wood, Amen. it'll come number one in your life. That's right. That's right. And all the people paid attention to the word of God. I'm on my iPhone during the service. I just got a text. I love you too. <laughs> no, they paid attention. They weren't looking around, wandering their watch, wondering how hot it is in here, what time is it, how when is he going to be done? They paid attention. You know why? Because when the word of God becomes number one, it really becomes number one. The third thing, verse one. We already saw this one. There was no division among the people. They gather together as one man. You see, nothing, when the word of God is number one in your church, and your life, and your ministry, then nothing gets between God's people. Now, there will be things that try to get between you. It isn't the fact that the Bible eradicates the problems that people have that may give you issues. It's the fact that the word of God eradicates the fact that you don't let those problems grow legs and you deal with it biblically and you solve the problems. Psalms 133, verse 1 how pleasant it is for the brethren to go to, to dwell together in unity. Then a fourth thing. They had respect for the word of God in verse five. Because when you exalt Christ through the word of God and it becomes central in everything that they did. So when Nehemiah opened a book from the pulpit of wood, everybody stood up. There was a respect for the word of God and the Lord. There's no respect for God today in churches. There's no respect for God in most of God's people's lives. You dress the way you want to dress. You live the way you want to live. You talk the way you want to talk. You go wherever you want to go. The Bible was central. There wasn't any praise bands. There wasn't any, uh, you know, there wasn't any, uh, <clears throat> any, uh, all the activities or any, uh, uh, any singers or anything that uh, praise singers or worship singers. It was just a book and the pulpit of the wood being declared to people. And they started early in the morning and went to noon and everybody paid attention. And when he opened the book, everybody stood up. And the fifth thing, verse nine. And Nehemiah, which is, uh, is the uh, 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 and Ezra the priest described, the and the Levites that taught the people said unto all the people, this day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. See, that's the effect when you love the book. That's the effect that it has on you. It touches your heart. They were weeping because of the book was open. Now, they've been out of fellowship and, and, and captivity for seven years, so they finally come back, and now they're getting back to where they should have been with the Word of God in their life, and it's such an impact in their life that it brings tears to their eyes. And yet we today... We watch so many things on television and waste our tears on so many TV shows and movies where things happen and people die and love relationships break up and none of it's true. They're all sitting along a pool someplace drinking a cocktail with millions of dollars in the bank. We waste our emotions on things that don't count and there's people around you, there's things around you, there's things that God did for you that wants to do with you that never penetrate into your heart. And they love the Word of God because it lifted up the one who was the author of their salvation, their true token. And that's the model for every church on this planet. That's the model for revival. That's the model for Christians. It's not to lift up your mega church or your programs, but from a pulpit of wood central to the people. Lift up Christ and let him draw the people in through the preaching, not the sideshow of selling snake oil. And today in Christianity, with all the cable TV and the YouTube and, uh, you know, the Internet and the telecommunications and the ability to transmit the gospel around the world and satellite communications and, and the printing material, lazy printing and printing the Bible and tracts and Christian material and all the modern day's ability, we are getting done less today than they got in the book of Acts when they had nothing but the Holy Spirit of God. Because all the things you see today in Christianity, all the bells and the whistles, do not replace the Holy Spirit of God, the pulpit of wood, the central preaching of the word of God, and exalting and lifting up Christ. Now look at verse 24. She maketh fine linen, and selleth it, and... Delivereth girdles unto the merchants. Now here she's likened to a business that makes clothes and then delivers them to the merchants to be, uh, you know, to be sold and distributed to the world. She's looking here as a as a retailer. Now she's like the ship from afar, verse fourteen. We saw uh, with the fine linen, which is the righteousness of the saints. And so it says here that she she maketh clothes, and we've seen the clothes that she makes, the fine linen. And then it says about the fact that girdles, now this isn't girdles like you think, uh, and maybe you don't even know this. When I grew up as a young kid, a lot of women wore girdles. My mother wore a girdle. I don't even think they make girdles anymore. But I I want to tell you, this is not the girdle like you're you're thinking. This is not the girdle that you put on that when you weigh 200 pounds, suddenly you look 80 pounds. That's a big girdle, I'll tell you. It's talking about, in our context here, if you remember, it's talking about not girdles like somebody would use, but in the context, the girding your loins with truth, that kind of girdle. We saw it in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. We looked at it in verse 17. The girds your loins with truth and strength. And of course, that's, the, that's what this woman does. That's what she produces. She produces strength and she produces fine linen and she produces loins girt about with truth. And what verse 24 is saying, that she through her preaching and manifesting of truth has brought a respect and honor to her husband, Christ, uh, and they exalt him. They exalt him because they see the change in their life. You know, the thing that will bring people to Christ more than anything else on this planet, you can pass out tracts, you can preach all day long, you can do whatever you want to do, but you know the number one thing that will really bring somebody to Christ that you're close to, the change in your life. That'll do more than all the tracks and all the texts and all the sermons and all the cassettes and all the CDs you could ever muster up to give them. Because they can listen to all that and see all that and deny it, but it's hard to deny when somebody's life changes for the Lord. And they accept the truth. And they go to work. They They get the Fine linen and their loins, gird about with truth. Then verse 25 says that strength and honor are her clothing. And she shall rejoice in time to come. Now there's a couple of things here that we want to look at. We break verse 25 down. First one is strength and honor are her clothing. See, the end result of our labor of love for God is to make clothes for ourselves, our household, and then the needy. And that'll be our strength. We saw a while back in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, that when you start teaching the Word of God, the Word of God exercises your senses and gives you discernment, and it makes you strong. Nobody ever got strong in the Lord by getting saved and just sitting. Yeah. You get strong by getting saved and then serving. Right. Let God take what you do. He says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. In all the new Bibles, it's I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. And, of course, that is a mistranslation completely. It's not God who comes down and strengthens you. You don't get saved and then pay your dues, and then at some point the big dump truck in heaven is going to back up with spiritual dust, and the roof's going to be pulled off some night and sprinkled while you're cozily sleeping in your bed. That's not how it works. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. It's the things that you do for Christ that strengthen you. And that's the key. That's the key. Philippians 1 6, he began a good work in you and performed it under the day of Jesus Christ. And you are to have strength and honor as your clothing. Why? Because you take the word of God when you got saved, your true token. And then you take it and you give it to others. And through that exercising of your senses, God takes what you do, the which, I can do all things, the which, and strengthens you. And through that work, through the strength of our hands, we will exalt him and by giving him the honor and glory to God's son, that sweet Savior, lifting him up for all to see. You see, at the crucifixion, he was lifted up on the cross for you and for me. Now, In this life, I need to lift him up for all the world to see through me. Not through the Bible. Not through my message. Your message means nothing if you don't live it to the best of your ability. And you see, at Calvary, he was lifted up on the cross for you and for me. Now, I need to lift him up for all the world to see, but it has to come through me to them. And then it says... She shall rejoice in a time to come. And there's two things here. Now we saw that she's not afraid of the snow and the winter, not going to get to her. And the Bible says that she rejoices in a time to come. And that first one we want to look at will be your household in the context, your family, your kids growing up and standing by your side in ministries, family teams, and to do the fulfillment of God's plan uh, of evangelism to the world. Proverbs twenty three twenty four says, The father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice, and he that begateth a wise son shall have joy of him. And so the first rejoicing has to do with you got your family by your side. You're saved, they're saved, clothed in scarlet, and they're all ministering together. They're not out in the world someplace. They're with you, by your side, ministering the word of God with you. <coughs> There's rejoicing in that. Then the second rejoicing will be our rejoicing at the judgment seat of Christ. The day we get 2 John chapter 1, verse 8, our full reward. But you got to be careful because there's people who want to take that from you. And that's why he says you want to, and look at the context of 2 John. <clears throat> he's telling you to be careful because <clears throat> there's people out there who want to keep you from getting a full reward. The idea of standing before God and rejoicing that you overcome the world and you did the work and you fought a good fight. Revelation chapter 4 verse 10, we talked about this before. It's the idea of casting your crown before God's throne. But in many cases, a lot of God's people won't be able to do that because revelation chapter 3 verse 11 they never heeded the warning and some men took their crown you know in our hymnals there there's, there's an old song that never sung much anymore but it's a song that's a great concept of revelation chapter 4 verses 10 and 11 it's on page 418 in your hymnal And it's a great song that's been sung for many, 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 many years, but it's kind of been lost in the shuffle today with all the praise bands and all the flashing lights and all the music and all the contemporary stuff. This great song's been lost in the pages of that old hymnal which simply says the name of the song, Must I Go In Empty-Handed. It's a reference to the judgment seat of Christ, the day where each of us all down through the history of the church, 2,000 plus years. One at a time, we'll take the crowns. And there's five of them in the Bible that a child of God can get. And most of God's people couldn't find these five crowns if their life depended on them, much less have them at the judgment seat of Christ. Are you kidding me? You don't even know where they're at. You couldn't lay them out if your life depended on it. Laying those at his feet And giving back to him all that he has done through you, the good works to the one who was our true token. And the verse says, must I go and empty handed, thus my redeemer meet, not one day of service give him, lay no trophy at his feet. And my dear friend, I'm telling you, the ultimate exaltation of Christ, and I know we exalt him now through our preaching, but I'm telling you, the greatest exaltation of Christ will be that day when you walk into the throne room with the crowns that you have earned through your work and everybody understands that you wouldn't be there or have done the work and you finished his work so they're not really your crowns. And you know what you do? You walk over and you lay those crowns at his feet the ultimate exaltation of Christ before the assembly family of God. You see, you don't strive for the ministry, the mastery of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says. You don't strive down here to get a crown and go through all that you go through for yourself. And if that's what you think you do and why you do it, Man, you're, in, you're, you're on the wrong road. You don't strive for the masteries, do the ministry, put up with what you put up with to get a crown for yourself. I mean, honestly, you're going to go to heaven and you got a glorified body. What's a dinky little crown going to do for you? But you strive... You you endure a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You put up with it all. You deal with it all. You face it all. You go through unbearable hardships and tough times and temptations and struggles in your life. Everything of that cold blast of winter to take you off the focus of the one who was your true token that gave everything for you to finish the work. So in that day, you don't get the crown so you can say, look at me, look what I have. You get the crown so you can walk into that throne room and lay them at his feet, not yours. But you see, that's so typical of God's people today. Everything's about us. The mega churches, look what we got. Look what we're doing. Look at all this straight stuff. Look at me. Look what I did. Look what I did. And you think that that's, you're doing that so you can stand there at the Jehovah's Seat of Christ and say, Look at all my crowns. I got a dump truck full of them. They're not for you. They never were for you. They're for the one who made it all possible. And the ultimate, listen to me, the ultimate exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ of lifting him up will be a child of God in here that you back up five dump trucks full of crowns and you walk up and you say, Lord, these are all for you for what you did for me. And I want to cast them at your feet. Not one of them do I deserve. Not one of them do I want. I thank God that I got them because I served you. But at the end of the day, dear Lord, it's all because of you. Back them up and dump them at his feet. They're not for you. They're not for me. And what a day that will be. If Revelation 4.11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they were created. And yet some one be there will walk in with Lord I don't have nothing. Nothing in my hand. And a great song will ring down through the annals and the hallway of heaven. Oh must I go in empty-handed? I I I can't imagine standing before the Lord with a glorified mind and body knowing all that he did for you and in coming to the realization that you could have right now this morning through this message. But you want to block it out. You want to paint it out. You want to mask it out. You want to pretend you weren't here. You want to pretend you want to blame it on me or the heat or the coronavirus. You want to you use every excuse. You could have it today and no, whatever time you got left. Those crowns are for him, not for you. But you won't. It'll take the reality of standing there and seeing him when you could see him this morning. Understanding what he did for you because now you have the mind of God when you have it now. But you just, we just, we just refuse We exalt and lift him up now through our preaching, through our church, and through our lives. But I'm telling you, folks, it's only a prelude to the final coming day of exalting him, our true token, with everything we've done for him. At the end of the day, it's all for him, all by him, and all goes back to him. And we just take what we have and lay at his feet and stand back and say, yes, sir, Thank you for all you did for me. Not much, but I gave my life for you, and here it is. It's all because of what you did for me, Lord, and I love you. So take it for your honor and glory. Turn around to the assembled Christianity. He is, Amen. he is worthy! He is worthy! That day is coming. Instead of worrying about should you wear a mask this morning, Instead of worrying about should you social distance, and I'm not saying you shouldn't and should be careful, but don't let that override everything in your world that you forget about the day that's coming. Amen. Because no mask will hide you then, no social distancing will keep you from going in there empty handed. Oh, Proverbs 31. A couple more weeks, we'll be done. But there you see it today the honor, the glory, the strength of lifting him up being everything to him, the pulpit, the word of God, the central preaching to bring together those five things in our lives that give us the true revival. You see, you don't have, shouldn't have, a church shouldn't have the program of revival. A church that preaches the word of God should live in a state of revival because God's always doing something.